0: But you know, good Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the the Windy City representative, the Baddest Brother above the Mason Dixon line, the Right Reverend Christopher Butler, Pastor Chris. How you doing today, man?
1: Oh, I am doing quite well. Doing quite well, indeed. Just celebrated uh, my birthday. So happy birthday! Uh, pretty
0: good, thank you, sir. Now, now, is it my understanding that you actually share a birthday with Fannie Lou
1: Hamer? Yes, indeed. Uh, a few years uh, earlier than me, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer was born, but uh, I do have the privilege of sharing uh, a birthday with that legend. That's special, man. That That, that is
0: special, man. Would have loved to be out there with you in Chicago. I know you got a lot of campaigning and stuff going on out there, man. I ha- I've had like a Five city tour in the last uh, week and a half. So it's been a a crazy one for me. But I know something we both share is the joy of knowing that the Chicago Bears did pull off a win with Justin Fields as their starting quarterback uh, last week. So that's something to be happy about.
1: Yes, indeed it is. And and they they put him in as a starter. So as, as long as they protect, I think I'm gonna be happy about that.
0: Yeah, you got to protect the man. You know, if you don't if you can't protect the man, then just wait until you can. But uh, hopefully they can do a little better. Uh, We shall see. Man, we got a lot to talk about today, a whole lot to talk about today. So we might as well just go ahead and and get into it. Uh, But as usual, and camp, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think. Not like a Republican, not like a Democrat. But like a Christian. Now, Emma Green, who writes on religion, culture and politics for the Atlanta, had an article come out this week called The Conservative Dreading and Preparing for Civil War. That's right. Civil War. She interviewed uh, Ryan Williams from the Claremont Institute, which is a conservative uh, think tank. Their mission at the Claremont Institute is to restore the principles of the American founding to their rightful preeminent authority in our national life. They want to return to limited government and to save Western civilization. They generally seem to be Trump supporters. I think they're pretty uh, uh, clear about that. And it came out in the interview, Chris, that one of their fellows is a legislative assistant for Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. She is the QAnon uh, supporter. Now, as you guys would imagine, I have a lot of disagreements with Ryan Williams and the Claremont Institute, but that should never stop us and never does stop us here at the and campaign from wanting to be as charitable as possible, uh, wanting to be fair. So I want to start off this conversation. Uh, with that in mind. And so I have to start off by saying, I don't think, Chris, that the article of this, the title, excuse me, the title of this article was fair. After I read it, it seemed to me that the title was overly provocative as to be inaccurate. And here's what I mean by that. The title makes it seem like Williams was talking about preparing for civil war most of the interview, as if that's what the interview was about. And that's what he was bringing up and and really deep taking a deep dive into. But when you read the article, he was really just responding to the last question of the interview, which was about about violence. Uh, So I do want to start off by addressing that before we move forward. I didn't think that the title of this article was fair, uh, but but I think it was a telling uh, article nonetheless. So, so, so the Claremont Institute, just to kind of dive into to who they are, they believe that America has been divided into two fundamentally different countries, primarily because of the rise of secularism and the progressive movement. Williams says that the founders were pretty much unanimous that the Constitution is really only fit for a for a Christian people. Hmm. That's an interesting statement to me, because, number one, pretty much unanimous means that they weren't unanimous, number one. And then you also got to consider that they prioritize religious freedom. Right. Um, And not just religious freedom inside of Christianity. Uh, You also have to consider that they made a lot of space, even if they didn't use these exact words or, or say it, you know, how we talk about it today. They made a lot of space for civic pluralism. That mechanism that they created through the Constitution forces a type of pluralism. All right. And so I think that assertion, which is one of his main assertions in this conversation, is is highly questionable, if not just downright false. But but look, I I digress. When you look at the article, what I got from it, Chris, is that he seems to primarily be worried about or concerned about the progressive movement's Push for larger bu- bureaucracy and what uh, some would call kind of the administrative state. Right, they're enlarging this bureaucracies. They're invading our privacy, invading all these other things. And he goes on to say that wokeism is a threat to limited government. He called it woke woke totalitarianism. Okay, uh, but a lot of his arguments, a lot of what he was saying, was based on the Constitution, which he calls the U.S. Constitution a colorblind document. Right, he says the U.S. Constitution was colorblind. This is another place where, obviously, you know, you'd say, well, was it so colorblind, I guess, that it allowed slavery? I would hope that if we were to have a conversation that we could all kind of admit that the implications and the impacts of the U.S. Constitution were not colorblind uh, and did allow people to be treated uh, differently. But again, I digress. I want to go deeper into this conversation based on the interview. The Claremont Institution's philosophy seems to be founded on this romanticized idea that we had an ideal country right after the creation of the Constitution. And then somehow these progressives came and tore it all apart. I mean, he he conveniently glosses over slavery and the treatment of indigenous people, which, again, is not just a small blip in the history of America. It's something that you really have to deal with. Uh, And I'm one of those people that thinks the Constitution, just like uh, Frederick Douglass, is a brilliant document that has had a lot of potential. But certainly I don't raise it to the point where where he's raising it uh, here. Um, he, He tends and you might have caught this, too, Chris. He tends to talk about Christianity and limited government with seamless transitions as if they're almost inexplicably, you know, inextricably tied together and they just they kind of just overlap. But the truth of the matter is, in my reading of history and, and folks may disagree and I'd love to hear what you have to say. Limited limited government, as I understand it, didn't free the slaves. Uh, it didn't establish the Americans with Disabilities Act. It didn't prevent the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, And the regulations that should have been there that didn't protect the people. Furthermore, you all know. So, you know, this isn't just me defending progressivism. You all know that I have serious issues with the progressive movement. I don't disagree that there are some serious dangers there. And I've said that over and over again. I'm sure I'll say it in the future. Namely, some of the problems that I have with it is its imposition of secular progressive values, such as kind of eroding parental rights and how it uses government and public public education to further that goal. Me and Williams may have some agreement there, but I also know that the conservative movement is not perfect. I also know that the conservative movement did not end Jim Crow. It did not establish workers' rights. It did not fight for gender equality. The progressive movement did that. It's not historically just some evil brigade that ruined a once perfect country. And I think that's, you know, to set it up that way and to kind of make that the basis for a lot of the the assumptions and and direction of your your organization is just bad. I don't like when progressives do that and act like uh, conservatism is just some completely negative thing that's always always just ruins everything and never wants to change anything. And I don't like when progressive progressives paint that kind of picture. Right. Uh, Again, it was progressivism that fought for civil rights Uh, workers. Well, it was Christianity, too. But as far as an ideology that that had a hand in it, it was progressivism that was fighting for civil rights, for workers' rights and for voters' rights. Limited government conservatism did not do that. And in fact, conservatives often fought against those things on the basis of federalism and limited government intervention. Again, the point is not to we're we're talking about this particular article. The point is not to say that progressivism is great. If you listen to the last few uh, 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 podcasts that we have episodes, we've had, you know, we don't think that. But we do have to push back against the idea also that conservatism is perfect and this country would be perfect, perfect, but for how progressives came in and ruined it. That's just a historical. Right. The federal government had to step in to protect people when individual states refuse to do so. I myself am not against federalism. For those people wondering what federalism is, it's the idea that, you know, you have a separation of government and then state governments have all the have all the powers that are not directly given to the federal government. Right. That are not explicitly given to the federal government. Those are states power and the state shouldn't intrude on that. That's true to, to a certain extent. I'm not against federalism. It can be helpful and it's great in theory, but I think we all have to uh, admit that in practice. It has failed vulnerable communities, namely black people in this country. Now, I'm about to hand it over, Chris, but let me say this. What stood out to me most in this interview is after all the talk about Christianity, after all the talk about truth and all this other stuff, he refused to critique his own tribe. When asked about QAnon, he refused to condemn QAnon. He refused to condemn those false conspiracies. When asked about Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, he refused to say that her antics were harmful to this democracy, to Western civilization and all these things that he wants to. He's saying he's trying to save. And so to me, a lot of this isn't about faith in God. It's about faith in power. It's about faith in the dark arts of of politics. In some ways, this is almost faithless when it comes to a Christian point of view. This is, in many ways, the opposite of what the end campaign promotes. But, Chris, I just want to get your feeling on uh, just on this article in general and, and that point of view coming from the Claremont Institute.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I'm going to start the same place mm-hmm. that you did, because I think it is just particularly Bad to me, and that, that's what the um, the headline. And the reason that I start with the headline is, is, is just the same as you in terms of uh, it's not fair. I think it, a lot of folks would agree that it's not fair if you read the entirety of the piece. Um, but beyond that, it is certainly without question not charitable. Um, and I think that it is okay in this particular uh, political moment to begin to uh, to sort of ask for that and require that in some ways in, uh, in public discourse. Um, because one of the big things, if, if not the biggest thing that we're sort of working against right now uh, in our democracy, in our public discourse, uh, is this whole fundamental idea of Hyper division, um, uh, constant tribal warfare. And so when you have an interview like this, that is pretty substantive, uh, that where you can make, you know, sort of uh, uh, challenges to the argument on the substance. It does us no favors uh, to pull out the very most sort of salacious thing and make that the headline. Um, and, and I'm talking about for those, like me who would want to critique a lot of what we actually find in the, in the piece itself. We, you touched on, on so, so many things. I'm not going to go back and uh, repeat all of those things. Um, I I, I do want to point out a couple of things on this point of uh, conservatism and, you know, I'm not huge on, you know, waving flags and, staking out territory in one camp or the other. But I don't think that it is necessarily the best conception of conservatism to put it forward as this idea that nothing should ever change. Um, I don't think you have to be a progressive to understand that time doesn't go backward. Um, societies and people don't really flow backward, and that things indeed do change. Uh, and I, I think if, if you just take a sort of intellectually honest approach to the conversation, even as a conservative, you would uh, sort of um, admit to the fact that the the country that we live in today is a little bit different um, from the one that the founders lived in. Uh, now, I, like you, and I think like Williams, uh, believe that the the Constitution itself as a document is really profound because in some way it it dreams of a world that it really wasn't born into or born out of. Um, and so I think there's a lot of capacity in the Constitution to still guide and govern um, here. But this, uh, there's a mood in the conversation, at least the way I interpret it, that Change itself has been bad uh, in some way, and I don't think that you have to be a progressive uh, to disagree with that concept. I think that there is a um, a conception of conservatism that's 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 more deeply connected to uh, a, a set of ideals around what is true, what is of the most important value, um, and that and that there are sort of universal truths that do not change but as we live up to those truths in greater and greater measure uh stuff does change and i don't think you got to be a progressive to uh to make that argument
0: and then the, the idea that we started off at the best right. place right like we started off at a place that we have to get. no maybe we started a place where we needed to get closer to the truth which is true in a, in a number of areas and i don't know that this ideology philosophy allows yeah
1: for- uh, and 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 so that's I think that's the second point that that I want to look at, and that's this idea you talked about how he sort of makes this seamless transition from limited government uh, to Christianity, um, but also from limited government and Christianity uh, to uh, to sort of I guess uh, old school uh, uh, Westernism. It, there's a connection there, which I, I, I don't know that it is particularly good uh, to to tie Christianity so closely to Westernism. Um, it, it, I, I don't want to go down that as much because we're talking about American democracy here. Um, but but there's some there's some real danger. And I think even when you're talking about American democracy, there's some real danger in tying Christianity uh so closely to westernism certainly christianity uh was a major influence on westernism but westernism is not a main influence or any influence at all on biblical christianity it didn't exist when the bible and Christianity. And there seems to out. be some
0: supremacy there yeah. right uh what, what, right there seems to be some prim- supremacy there i mean because if you think about historically even when you're talking about the conquest and all this stuff there was always this thought that true civilization and true knowledge only came from the Western civilization, and anything else was some some kind of somehow lesser. And you almost see pieces of that here, but I'm gonna let you continue. Yeah, no,
1: I, I think it's, it's 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 really dangerous, and I, like, like I, said, I, w- I won't go way into that, but you can't tie Christianity uh, so close to clo- so closely uh, to Westernism. And then the the last connection that I'll point out is this really really close tie. Um, of the sort of constitution and founders talk to this idea of hyperfederalism, as if at the early uh, years of this country, there weren't anti-federalists and there weren't, you know, sort of democratic Republicans. And both of those sort of ways of thinking did find a home in the constitution, even, you know, in, in the debates of the, the framers and the very early uh, uh, leaders of this of this country, and so to to sort of assert, which I think we have here, not directly, but again, if you take the whole thing in total, there's sort of an assertion here that all of the framers, all of the founders were these hyper federalists, um, and so we just got to get back to hyper federalism. And everything is going to be OK. And again, like, I just don't think that's honest. I don't think that's a uh, an accurate reading of history from the from the very, very early debates in the United States. Um, there was debate, you know, around, you know, how much the federal government should get involved state by state. And and again, there have been tremendous failures with that. And, and, and I'm I'm all about, uh, you know, Critiquing and making sure that we do not over apply uh, the influence of federal government in the lives of people and even in the uh, in the affairs of states, but I don't think it's fair to to equate you know the the framers the founders the constitution as a uh, a, a solidly and unquestionably um, hyper-federalist sort of way of thinking. From the very beginning of this country, federalist and anti-federalist have debated the role of federal government. And that debate continues. I think it's good and it's healthy.
0: Yeah, I mean, federalism has its merits, right? I mean, there, there is a value to that. And we can see that value and we can advocate for that value. But you can't walk away. But you, but to your point, you can't just act like that. The the founders' intention was this federal, hy, uh, uh, this hyper federalism that he kind of mentioned, and you can't pretend that federalism hasn't failed at times. That if federalism didn't fail in a way that it was supposed to be right, then what would happen with slavery? What happens with Jim Crow and all these other things? You really have to answer that, and I think progressives have to answer the to the fact that sometimes this big. Uh, overly large government can fail us in many different ways for Christians. We we shouldn't be so drawn to these ideas that we have to defend them at all costs. No, we say, you know what? I think this is valuable in this situation, but I can acknowledge where it goes wrong. And I think here you have him talking about federalism, like it's just infallible and it's always served us well. And it just has not always served us well. But here's the other thing. And it, it kind of ties into what you were saying uh, earlier too. When he talked about Christianity, he often coupled it with the Constitution, almost as if the Constitution was like the Bible, right? Like that was the the Bible or it was this document that always led us to the right spot. If we could just get back to that, everything will be right. And it's almost like he got those two mixed up, the Bible and and the Constitution. We both acknowledge the brilliance that went into creating the Constitution. Anybody who can't see this document as something that is just. Brilliant! You need to read it a couple more times. You need to read world history a couple more times and some other folks constitutions that fell well short of what ours has. Is it perfect? No, but I don't know that he gets that. You know what I'm saying? You almost got the feeling like this was this document that it was just and it's like, man, we got to be a little more critical. Like, I, I get why that's a strong argument and an easy argument, but it's a very flat argument and a historical argument when you and dig I, into it. So that's one thing I was and, like,
1: I, I think if I ahead. could just because I think that that piece, too, Justin, is like so it's a little bit dishonoring to God. If you think about it, um, when I look at our Constitution and I look at the the sort of biographies of the the, the men who formed it and just how really fallible and broken they were. You really have to make an argument that they they achieved something that was beyond themselves right um, as a believer i'm I'm inclined to support the fact that maybe God really was up to something right there uh, but but if you take that argument then you just glorify God for some incredible stuff that happened with some really ragtag people, which is what God always does. But when you try to lift up the document to an unfair place, when you try to lift up even those. So humans, you're saying
0: that every, every word of the constitution was not breathed. from. That is God. not like, what I'm not, saying. not.
1: And, 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 and you gotta, okay. I, I think that folks like understand that, like those, those of us who are believers know that like, God will help you give you ideas Um, that you wouldn't put in canon of scripture, but you would be like, man, like God helped me with that. Um, and, and, and I, I believe that, you know, that God truly is sovereign in the affairs of man. Um, and I just argue, why not then just glorify God for whatever he was doing in that moment, which we do not know in totality because we still only know in part uh, but it's an opportunity to just say glory to God instead of glory to the Constitution and glory to the framers.
0: No, that's good. That's good. I mean, it's tough. And I want to to be to be charitable. I've given some interviews where either the questions didn't lead me to say everything I wanted to say, or I got done with it. <laughs> I got done with it. And I'm like, maybe I came off a little too strong on that point when my my overall a thought process or ideology doesn't lead me to, to think that. So that's, that's a possibility here too. But when we talk about the point made at the end of the article about violence and about possible civil war. And, and I I do want to point out that he said, you know, this is not something he wants to happen. He dreads that we would, might have to go to a point of violence, but it's still like, why are we, you know, why are, why do we think we're there right now? Um, And there's so much fear of this, of secularism and of the progressive movement that I think it's very unhealthy. And here's and this is for people on on both sides of the conversation who have this fear of progressives or this fear of conservatives. Understand this. And especially when we're talking about the, the division in this country and possible violence. We can hate or fear something, someone or some group of people So much that we start to anticipate and prepare for the worst. And in that anticipation, in that preparation, we actually become the ones who are bringing about this worst case scenario. Right. It's the person that's in a relationship, for example, it's a person who's in the relationship, who's so insecure, so afraid of getting hurt uh, or the relationship ending badly that they end up being the one to destroy the relationship out of anxiety and paranoia out of fear. And that's what I see happening when it comes to a lot of conservatives and progressives. They're anticipating this so much that they're actually the ones that are bringing it about because they're so insecure and paranoid about it. Right. Instead of being committed to persuading. Now they feel like this is going to fall apart. It's inevitable. Now they have to compel. And when, when you go from persuasion into compulsion, You're actually the one that's bringing about this worst case scenario. And so I would just keep that in mind and camp as we go about these conversations. Where is your faith? Is your faith in power? Is your faith in being in power? Or is your faith in something that. It doesn't really matter who's in control in this world. Your faith has something greater. We'll be back. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. This is Justin Gibney. I'm sitting here with the right reverend, Christopher Butler. And we're going to stay on the constitutional theme. Uh, We're going to stay on this theme of of possible civil war, as scary as that may seem. Uh, The Washington Post columnist Robert Kagan recently wrote an article entitled, Our Constitutional Crisis is Already Here. It starts with a James Madison quote that says, Is there no virtue among us? If there be not, we are in a wretched situation. Kagan, who, uh, like Williams, considers himself a conservative, but a different conservative, says the U.S. is headed into the greatest political and constitutional crisis since the Civil War with a reasonable chance of mass violence and the division of the country into blue and red enclaves. Now, he gives us a reason for this. He says there are a couple. There are two reasons that he thinks this is the case. Number one, Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. Number two, Trump will not accept a loss. He will not accept a loss. He has undermined the system with the stop the steal effort. He's also removed Republican officials that disagreed with him. And many of his supporters uh, control local elections in several states. All right. Uh, uh, Kagan says also that the political and intellectual establishments have underestimated Trump's popularity and his hold on his followers, that they've underestimated this from the beginning and continue to do so. Now, those are some compelling reasons, and he might be right on those two points. Something I would add to it, Chris, is that my guess is that the left might not accept a loss either if Trump wins. And I think this is primarily because he won't win the popular vote. And so people will basically use that to say hey, I'm sick of this system. It's, you know, it's it's ruled by a minority and this has to end. And that's when you get into these mass violent uh uh you know, this mass violent these huge protests and all this stuff, man. It could happen. Um And here's a few questions you know, when he talks about our constitutional crisis is here, here's what he's kind of getting into. All right. He asked these questions. He says, what happens when there are mass protests across the country? Would governors call the National Guard? Right. Governors of each state call the National Guard. Would Biden nationalize the Guard? If he did nationalize the Guard, that would be seen as tyranny. In many of the states, again, we're going back to this federalism conversation where states have their rights and they, you know, unless it was directly given into the federal government, those are states rights that they maintain. All right. Kagan is saying that the Constitution offers no rem- remedy for this crisis. Right. No remedy. The Constitution has no remedy for the crisis that I just uh, explained. And he says that most Americans and most politicians are. Are not taking this possibility seriously. He says that Trump almost pulled off a a coup. He said that Trump was two state senators, two state attorney generals and a vice president away from staging a coup. I'm going to say that again. Trump was two attorney generals, one of those being in Georgia and a vice president, Vice President Pence, away from staging a coup. But they had enough integrity not to go along with him. Kagan says that these were not the checks and balances the framers had in mind when they drafted the Constitution. He said they did not foresee the Trump phenomenon. They didn't anticipate that party, that national party solidarity would transcend state borders. Kagan suggests that there is a remedy, although it's not constitutional. He says that the remedy is forming a national unity coalition where senators like Romney and uh, more moderate Republicans form this coalition related to elections to make sure that 2024 doesn't go off the rails. That they need to come together and say, hey, whatever happens, we're going to make make sure that we take care of business. Chris. Should we take this? Is there a constitutional crisis? And if so, sh- how seriously should we be taking it?
1: Well, what do you think? So I think there's definitely a critical historical moment, a very important historical moment. Um, my reading of this article was uh, a, a little bit, I, I had a little bit of, of, of issue here. A few things. One, as you pointed out, the question is never asked in the article Can the Left Accept a Loss? right? Um, Because if we assume, which is still an assumption, I would point out, but if we assume that Donald Trump is the Republican uh, nominee, the article does at at least recognize that the, the Democratic side of the ticket sitting here today in October of 2021 doesn't look that strong. And so I don't know why we would immediately start overanalyzing the process that would unfold if Donald Trump lost the election and then, you know, didn't accept a loss. Because you could make a good argument sitting here right now today that were he the nominee, he would, you know, there's a a decent likelihood that he could win. Right. So you got to ask the question then. Uh, is is the left are uh democrats ready to accept a trump electoral victory um and and what would be the sort of outgrowth of that uh so that's one thing the, the next thing that I would say is that some of the language in the piece uh I think uh over dramatizes Uh, some of the Trump activity, which again, I think anybody who listens to this podcast on a very regular basis, anybody who knows me knows that I'm no fan of Donald Trump. Uh, There's a a ton of stuff that Donald Trump does and says and and represents that I don't agree with. But when you start saying that Donald Trump has forced people from office, right, is it's uh, it's important to point out that Donald Trump has not like gathered a group of, uh, paramilitary, uh, folks and, you know, kidnapped somebody or, uh, overtaken their office. If Donald Trump is going around and organizing people and making speeches and winning elections, you know, you have to decide for yourself if you think that's a good thing. Um, you have to decide that for yourself. I'll leave that there. Uh, but but to, to say that he's like forced people from office, I just feel like that language in this moment is, is, is a little misleading because he's doing only things right now. I mean, he's going to court. He's making speeches. He's having rallies. Um, he's doing electoral work. Those who want to see him not in power have to figure out how to do those same things, how to get folks on their side, using their speech, using whatever avenues we have in the courts, using uh, the electoral process uh, to move that thing forward. Uh, And and then-
0: To be clear though, Chris, real quick, but you would say, and I know you would say this, I just want to get it out. Trump did rely on intimidation and misinformation to unduly change the election results.
1: To attempt, which is my next point, he did use misinformation and right, intimidation attempt. to attempt to mm-hmm. overturn the election results, which I would suggest when the article says that he was just two states attorney general and a vice president away from overturning the election. I would suggest that's a good distance, right? Um, two states attorneys general and a vice president. If I, I just see with this article, you have the Madison quote up front, and then you start making this argument, and you begin to see this idea that there are not enough states' attorneys general. Um, that there are enough people who are so on, you, you know, you look at somebody like Mike, Mike Pence, like Mike Pence was not like this super anti Trump person, right? He was a person who had some fidelity to the Constitution. Had some fidelity to his office. Um, these two state's attorneys general. It's not like it was two state's attorneys general out of fifty who were under this intimidation and pressure. This was two state's attorneys general, you know, out of like four that were under this pressure, um, and 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 really no state attorney general took the step of overturning their state's election. So to, to say that, oh, well, we're just a couple of state's attorneys general and the vice president away, that sounds really close when you write it in that sentence. But in reality, I feel like that is a, that's evidence that the system held up. And so to, to begin to suggest that we're in a place where the, where our, our systems of government are, in jeopardy of not being able to work. I don't think that's true. I I think that what we have is a situation where we all need to be having conversations inside of our tribes and communities right now to bring uh, the temperature down and get ready to fight hard in an election and then accept the outcome of that election, whichever way it goes. Will, will
0: people? Do you feel like right now people will accept the outcome? Well, will Will Trump accept the outcome? Is there something to the idea that he's setting up to where he doesn't have to accept that? I,
1: I certainly think there is a a situation in which he's trying to do that, um, which is a point that I think is really important for us to uh, to make. Is that there? This is not like uh, this 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 question of of sort of division the. Partisan and tribal vitriol is not taking place in like this neutral environment where, you know, there's just something in the water and people are getting angry. Like there are people and systems in our media and, uh, you know, and, you know, sort of tech and social media places and our politics. they are people who have made their careers and are making their money off of our hatred mm-hmm. of one another. Uh, and are using their significant influence in our culture to um, to stir people's anger. And if there is a fight to be had, that's that's the other thing that I, that I think when I read this article, I think it centers Trump a little too much because I think that if there's a fight that we need to wage, it is against that very idea that we... We have to find ways to stop allowing folks who are making their money and making their careers off of everyday people hating other people. Um, We have to stop them. We have to figure out a way to win back our own hearts and minds um, and to regulate some of that platform and influence so that it's not as easy to... To put I mean this this for instance, the article that we're discussing, if we're honest, is mostly speculation and innuendo, but present it as almost like prophecy and um, and sort of standard truth and it's, and it's, and it is not that, but even discussing like it, the discussion around oh well are we going to have a civil war is what's going to get play um, in, in, a, in a lot of our outlets. And you and I can go out and try to have a conversation about, well, can we actually come together and heal our country? It's probably not going to end up like on the front page of the Washington Post right now. Um, and I think that's the, the, the problem that we're facing. So is he going to, is he trying to set it up where he doesn't have to, uh, you know, uh, uh, accept an electoral loss? He's certainly trying to set it up that way. I, I don't think that anybody's do, like out in front, trying to set it up where uh, Democrats have to accept a loss. I think that we're also angling to make sure you know how many times you hear on uh, you know TV news and stuff well the ele- the, the, the uh, electoral college, the um, the popular vote and that kind of stuff. We're also seething arguments um, you know to make. And I think the main thing that we have to do is, is sort of is start trying to bring the temperature down right now. Those of us who think that that's a good thing need to be doing everything we can inside of our own tribes and, and, and parties to start to bring the temperature down. We have to work hard in the election, try to get the win for your side. That's what our democracy is about. but we start we need to start preparing ourselves to accept the opposite outcome wherever we are. Um yeah, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. So so you you feel it's overblown.
0: Um I, I'm with you in that I don't see our system just allowing Trump to do what he wants to do. Could he make it more difficult? Do we have to go through this whole, you know, back and forth steal the, you know yeah, we, we might have to go back back through that. I also think you have the Supreme Court which I do not think they're that far gone. I do not. They're not in Trump's pocket, regardless of what, you know, sometimes progressives try to say. They're not going to just go along with him stealing an election or anything like that. So you still you still have that there as well. So I think the system holds up. I think the constitutional checks and balances prevents him from really, you know, going any further. I do worry about which we got you were just mentioning. I do worry about the mass violence. I do worry about the left and the right, the base not accepting the outcome that they didn't want to see and what happens for there from there. How long does that move forward? How much does the side that loses continue to undermine the system by saying somebody was cheating or saying, you know, we don't like the electoral college. And my thing with that is you've got to change. It's been there. The electoral college, that's the rules. That rule has been there. You can't act like you didn't know what the rules were just because you don't like the rule. So even, you know, even somebody that's a, a Democrat, that's the rule until you change that rule. Then that's what it is. And you can't say it's not cheating. It's not anything else. You were cool with it any other time. Right. So if you want to fix it, then you if you want to fix it, then do that. Until then, you know what the rules are. You don't get to overturn an election or illegitimize an election based on something that you knew was there when you voted. Um, so that's I mean, that's one way that, you know, that's one we have to look at it. But I want to I want to jump back into what you were saying. What what must Christians do? Because he's saying that there's not a constitutional remedy. We don't necessarily buy that it's into this huge constitutional crisis, that there has to be this fallout in the 2024 election. But let's say let's say there isn't a constitutional remedy. There should be a remedy in the mind and in the civic engagement of the Christian. And this is, I I think, what Chris was getting at. We have to commit to being peacemakers. And if you want to know what that means, look look up our conversation on peacemakers that I think I did at the beginning of this year or the end of last year on this on this podcast. We also have to agree and this is what Chris and I'm all the way with him, we have to accept the results of the election unless somehow otherwise proven and adjudged by a court of law to be you know otherwise. We have to accept the results of the election. And we have to hold our elected officials accountable to make sure. Well, our elected officials, especially the ones that are in uh, elections, right, to make sure that they're not just political hires. We can do that now. Right. We can look at are these folks just political hires or do they actually know what they're doing? Right. Um, And then we have to agree. You know, we have to look at what we're retweeting, what messages we're putting out there. We have to be making sure that we're promoting healthy Government, healthy discourse, and that's one of the things that we can do. Be prepared to lose if you lose. Be able to be a grown up if you do lose, and still be healthy and constructive with what we do. That's something that we can do, even if we uh, uh, see the idea that there is no constitutional uh, uh, remedy for this. Mm-hmm. Chris, I'll let you take us second Yeah,
1: I think that's absolutely right. I think one thing that the the article. Um, Kagan's article sort, sort of starts to get toward, I wish it would have been the the emphasis of the article, uh, but it does move toward this idea that there are things that we can do between here uh, and 2024. Um, as, as you say so rightly, uh, there are things that we can do sort of in the populace. Uh, there is an opportunity for people in elected office to start to work together. I think that the The article sort of suggests that Republicans need to go work with Democrats and just do you know stuff that that Democrats want to do i think that there, there have to there has to be give and take uh, on both sides but there is opportunity right now for elected leaders for uh community leaders and grassroots leaders um you know for for leaders and 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 folks across the spectrum to start to work on this um because i'm 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 with you. I, I am concerned about mass violence. Um, I think that I'm a little bit once, a, a few steps away from where the article seems to be because I'm not ready to prefigure mass violence. There are a few years here um, in which we can be doing work, and I think that should be the emphasis. Um,
0: if If you're the mayor of or governor of Mayor of Chicago, governor of Illinois, coming up to 2024, it looks like Trump is going to win. Are you preparing for mass violence?
1: If I'm the governor, or the mayor, and nothing has changed between now and that time, uh, I certainly would be preparing for it. But if I'm the governor and the mayor of Chicago or Illinois uh, right now today, I'm actually trying to find ways to have conversations in the community. Um on two, on two things. One, you know, those folks are partisan. How do we organize to make sure uh, that the outcome of the election is the one that we want to see? Um, and not only how do we organize that, how do we uh, legislate in a way that brings more people onto our side between here and there? Um, but then to make sure that as one of the leaders in the party, one of the leaders in the community, that I'm starting to say right now today, we've got to work toward this because we want to win. It's not that we don't want to win, but we have to be prepared uh, to fight as hard as we possibly can within the bounds of our democratic system of government uh, and then accept the uh, outcome of the election. And every leader, before they ever have to, Think about are they going to have to call up the National Guard has an opportunity right now uh, to start to do work to make sure that that doesn't have to happen.
0: And that's civic leaders as well. We can get so into talking about the bad things that are going to happen if the other side wins that we don't say to the people who are listening to us. You got to accept the outcome. Right, because if we only talk about how everything's coming to an end and we see all the ads and everybody's going to be their heads are going to be full of how life is over and the country is over if the other side wins. Somebody's got to be a grown up in the room enough to say, if we lose, you need to accept the outcome and be constructive.
1: Yeah. And I, I would say,
0: will we have that kind of leadership?
1: I, I, I think, um, you know, we we saw this with Trump. It, when you don't do that, you actually sink the election. Right. When you talk to people about the fact that you have to accept the outcome, that's how you get people to, to volunteer. That's how you get people to work. That's how you get people to come out and vote. If you set people up only to fight against an outcome that we don't like, the motivation is not necessarily to go win the election. The motivation is to fight the outcome of the election. Uh, so I, I, I think that both sides really need to take that into account, that this this whole dance around are we going to accept the outcome of the election moves the focus of your base from actually winning the election
0: good stuff we will be right back on the church politics podcast are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast by now I'm sure that some of you have heard that uh, Senator Kirsten Cinema, who is an Arizona Democrat uh, last week or I think it was this weekend, was videotaped and chased into a school bathroom over the weekend by pro Biden. she's a Democrat, but she was chased into a bathroom by pro- Biden agenda activists who were confronting her over her object- her over her objections that are holding up Biden's Build back better agenda. We have talked about this agenda several times. We talked about the reconciliation that's going through how progressives and moderate Democrats are going back and forth. Cinema is kind of on that moderate side uh, of of the conversation uh, and people are upset. They're basically saying, hey, all the Democrats are on the same page. Why are you not going along with us now for the sake of, of of transparency and honesty? I'm not all that happy with cinema either, and it's not just because she's not going along with the Democrats. Uh, it's because I think her motivations look to be compromised. Let me say that uh, this is a person who supported uh, coming down on pharmaceutical prices. Now she, you know, apparently doesn't support that anymore, and it looks like she may have received uh, some funds, not illegally, but from Big Pharma. These are the type of things that that are going on. Uh, and so these people are upset. They chase her into a bathroom, meaning that she was fearful that she was going to be accosted or some, you know, that they were being way too aggressive that she runs into this bathroom. I'm not very happy with Kirsten cinema right now. That is unacceptable. Uh, you're hearing about these parents on the conservative side. We have folks that are going to school board members houses and yelling at them so much that they're getting trying to bring them out their houses. That's not where you do civic engagement. You don't go to somebody's private residence to do your civic engagement. You don't chase them anywhere into any bathroom or anywhere else. That's not how this works. And this goes into the conversation, Chris, and I know you know where we're going. It goes into a conversation about civility because that's something and we talk about it quite a bit. That's something that is really. A pressing conversation right now. Um, And one side would say. Stop talking about civility because sometimes, civility, and this is true, I agree with this, sometimes civility is used to tell people to shut up, to tell people not to be passionate, to pe- tell people not to uh, speak in, uh, as loudly as needed to be heard. So if you're going to be civil, I need you to just chill. Don't ever interrupt me. Don't be passionate. Don't say things in the wrong way. Make sure everything's about respectability politics. Be civil. Which is sometimes just the powerful telling people to shut up. You're bothering me. You're a nuisance. I don't want to have to deal with it. I think it is wicked. Not only is it undemocratic, it is wicked to use a concept like civility to rob people of voice, to rob people of agency, to make it so that they're unheard. And in some cases... Especially when it comes to the establishment, it comes to many times the conservative side of this conversation and the majority side maybe is a better way to put it. Civility is weaponized against smaller groups. And what I would say is that's a distorted understanding of civility. Civility is not passivity. Civility is not being in the public square and making sure that uh, you, o- you only say things in the way that a certain group wants you to say them. Or that you never interrupt while I'm filibustering you. Right. That's not civility. That's distorted. And that is a mechanism of powerful people trying to shut other people up. I truly believe that. But let me also say this. On the other hand. If incivility and therefore intimidation become the norm. The problem with that is that it also plays into the hand of the powerful. Because once you get rid of civility, then the rule is intimidation. And if I have the power, if I have the money and I have the guns, then I'm going to be able to intimidate you. And so it's always interesting to me, Chris, when I hear people who come from so-called and I hate to use this term, but what you would consider weaker groups, right? or smaller groups, groups that wouldn't have as much political power or much as much economic power, right, or social power or cultural power. It always surprises me when you hear these people say. Kind of fight against civility. Because at the end of the day, if there's no civility, then you really have no voice. Now, what I think they're really saying is "I'm, I'm against this distorted view of civility where you use civility to shut me up. But what I think we should be doing is fighting for a truer version of civility, not fighting against civility, because in my estimation, Chris, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. True civility empowers weaker communities by giving them voice without having them having to overpower stronger, um, better financed and all this other stuff to fight past those groups. It gives you the opportunity to speak. Civility gives the racial minority with a meritorious claim a voice. Civility gives the small woman with a big idea and an articulate viewpoint a voice. It gives the sexual minority with a persuasive testimony, a voice where otherwise might is right. And that w- rules the day. Civility is not your enemy. A distorted version of civility is your enemy. We should be t- fighting for a true form. What happened to cinema was not cool. The other part of incivility, and we see it with the cinema conversation, is that it's not perfect. It's not uh, it's not effective. It's counterproductive. it's basically a temper tantrum where you momentarily get out whatever emotion you want to get out and then it ends up being counterproductive because now cinema's talking about I'm punching back she's even madder and more set in her ways than she was before which is exactly usually what happens when you're when you're not civil it does not change people's minds unless you want to go all the way to violence unless you want to go all the way to intimidation where again you're playing into the hands of those who already have power. Let me know what it is, Chris.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think that we have to continue to have this conversation about civility because the I hundred percent agree that the subverted um, concept of civility uh, will disempower, would disempower uh, weaker folks and weaker communities. Um, I, I I do think that there is some need for, I, I guess. Thinking again about how we do uh, protest, I think that if you hold the two things that you, Justin, were just talking about, this uh, need and, and desire for true civility uh, with the need and desire for effective protest, um, we actually end up in a healthy place. Uh, because I personally, if somebody just told me, like, hey, we're going to chase a senator into uh, well, we're, we're going to follow a senator into the bathroom um, in in protest. Just as I will with any other mechanism of protest, you have to ask the questions around, do you think, well, one, what's your goal? Right. Like if, if your goal is just to get your face and your video on television and social media, uh, then that's probably going to be effective. If your goal is to change. Kirsten cinema's vote an approach to legislation that you care about you really have to ask yourself what part of that protest is going to give cinema something that she wants or withhold from her something uh, that she does not want and I, I think usually if you go for effective protest um, you are going to Stay in, in safe spaces because when you're thinking about effective protest, you're essentially, to go back to a phrase that you used earlier, which I really like, uh, you're talking about how to persuade, not how to compel. Um, and I think there is fairness in using protest as a means of persuasion. Uh, we are going to withhold from you something that you want uh, or prevent you um, from getting something uh, or, or put something on you that you do not want, uh, consistently until you change your vote. and I don't, I just don't see where this particular protest, uh, was going to do this. If I were helping them organize, I'd be like, no, what you got to do is you got to have people outside of the Senator's classroom every day. And they don't, at that point, they don't have to follow her in the bathroom but they gotta be there every single day. They gotta make videos every day. They gotta ask her that question every day and do it in such a way that w- you, you, the reason I would say don't follow her into the bathroom is is frankly not because I see something, you know, where that particular tactic is a hundred percent off limits in every case. I just think you made the bathroom the issue instead of your issue. Uh, versus if, if you just did this every day, every day, until you start to win. Maybe she says something or does something that then she's the one that's looking bad or looking crazy. And, and I think when we're trying to get to this issue of civility, if we, if we try to keep in mind what civility really is, and then try to keep in mind what's actually going to be effective forms of protest, we'll keep ourselves in a safe space. When we allow ourselves to start turning our protest into just an opportunity to. Be seen. I just for me as an organizer, that's that's really not what protest is really supposed to be about.
0: So your biggest issue is that it wasn't effective.
1: I think it, it, it wasn't civil. And I think that but I think part of the reason.
0: So it wasn't civil. So you do agree, because here, here's my thing. Civility can be disruptive. And that's the false sense of civility doesn't allow you to be disruptive. Civility can be disruptive. Again, it's not passivity, but there are important boundaries. And one of those boundaries are physical and private privacy boundaries. And I think in the both the types of protests that I brought up, we they went past physical boundaries. And in the other instance, private residential boundaries. Right. There, there's a public square. We talk about the public square when I was talking about a private square. You have to be very you have to be very careful when you have a bunch of people that are passionate of getting too close to somebody who you are protesting. Should, can you protest out her outside her classroom? Absolutely. Do you need to follow her when she leaves that area? That's a and how closely can you follow her? Anybody who trains people for protest, trains people for civic engagement. If you don't train if you don't train people to know those boundaries, then you're doing them a disservice, service because the civility creates, although it is, although it can be disruptive, it creates boundaries that protect human dignity, protect people in general and support our agency. This is how it empowers you. Now, if you go up to her and there's any level of intimidation, if there's anything that she feels like she's not physically safe at that point, you've exceeded those boundaries and you've done something that if the people with power do that to you, you're in trouble.
1: Yeah. And I, I think I, I agree with you on that. I, I, I think I, it's important to point out that when you become a public official, that concept of private space. Gets a little bit much, it's it a little bit more blurry than it is for like a straight private individual. Um, I still think this was this particular thing was not civil, but I think that is is really important. If if people want to know how to remain civil, most of the stuff that is not civil is also not effective, right? Because usually, if you are protesting, power doesn't protest. You know, like it it has it it, it has power and control. Right. So if you are in a space where you feel the need to protest, um, you are probably not going to win by being intimidating. You're probably not going to win by um, by crossing those boundaries uh, in a severe way. Really, protest should be trying to draw out the person you're protesting versus running across those boundaries. And yes, I think that the, this the, the, the civility is the outcome uh, that that we're talking about, I think, is a, a worthy outcome to discuss but you can get yourself into a a difficult headspace i think if you think about civility outside of the context of effectiveness i think that effectiveness question is usually something that keeps you inside of the bounds on on civility because that stuff that is not civil usually it is not go- i think the bounds have to exceed
0: the bounds have to exceed just what's effective i think there's a separation cuz there there could be If you you just say, hey, the bounds are when I get to what's not effective, then it's like, uh, no, the bounds are there uh, again to protect people physically. Right. And to protect people in a lot of different ways, which may I don't think usually are effective, but I don't think you can tie the effectiveness and the boundaries all that closely, because then it's like. Well, it just you know the ends justify the means. As long as it's effective, then the boundary doesn't really exist. If I can show it's effective, that that I see where we could run into No, trouble, I, I think I that's a
1: good point that you're making because because the effectiveness. I think the civility question is the question that defines the boundaries. But I think that if if your think if your thought process when you're getting ready to set up a protest starts with effectiveness you usually don't get anywhere close to the boundary. Civility is the boundary. Effectiveness can't be the boundary. You can't say, well, if the only reason we won't do it is if it is not effective. That's not what I'm saying. I think if it's not civil, you should not do it. But I think that if you actually start with effectiveness, you usually won't get anywhere close to the civility boundary because most of the stuff that is not civil is is not going to be effective because when you start doing that stuff that's not civil, you actually are are moving into the tactics of oppressive power, and you and you you don't even have it. So, like, what are you doing? If
0: for those who aren't sold on civility, the argument at that for its own sake, right. <laughs> right? The argument I make is that it's not effective, and we can see in this cinema. It's not effective. She's talking about. Now she's pushing back and now she, now she's even mad. You didn't do anything but have a temper tantrum. When you recorded go her go in the bathroom, you got a viral uh, uh uh tweet. But you didn't accomplish anything. It was counterproductive. Uh and so that is an argument to make for a lot of people that they need to hear, but but you can close this
1: out. Yeah, no, I I think that this is is a is a really, really important question, and I don't want to be perceived uh to be telling uh Christians or anybody else that you should and can do anything in protest as long as it is it is effective. Um, that's certainly not what I am saying. Uh, I, I think we have to maintain civility. Uh, I, I, I will suggest, though, that if we focus on effectiveness, we usually won't get close to the civility boundary. If you find something that is both effective and not civil, still don't do it. But I think if, if, if you start with how do we win, how do we move the ball down the road is usually and and we'll have a whole nother segment on protest, usually effective protest is going to cost you a little bit. you are going to come outside of your comfort zone a little bit because it, it's it's usually something that's going to show the world your suffering, not show the world. You trying to make somebody else suffer
0: your suffering is going or your commitment and, you know, what you're giving up, your sacrifice is going to speak to somebody like cinema and and the outside outside world. world more than you chasing somebody into a bathroom, more than you going to their house and making sure they can't go to sleep at night. Um, and so I think we definitely agree on, on, on yeah. most Whoever's
1: of that. Whoever's organizing it, Excellent. Uh, Justin just gave me a great idea for your protest. Instead of following Kirsten Sinema into the bathroom, get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pictures of immigrants uh, who have been uh, affected by the policy that you're trying to protest. Show up at her classroom every day and hand out. Give her one of those pictures, hand them out to her students, hand them out to other people. Uh, around the university. Do it every day. Guarantee you, you're going to start to see um, more impact in your protest than chasing her to the bathroom. Free consulting. Good <laughs> stuff, man.
0: That was big, man. This is one of our longest episodes, but I think it was long for a reason, and camp. I hope you all enjoyed it. We're going to keep talking about this. Hey, there needs to be protests out there, but there needs to be boundaries, and ultimately, especially if you find yourself in a group that isn't powerless, but doesn't have as much power as others. Those boundaries of civility help you. All right, all right. And camp as usual. There is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, and camp. We'll at you. Somebody say kingdom. Kingdom. Kingdom.
1: Oh, Lord. I said king